HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you sound in the end. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. It's a beautiful day here in Brooklyn, and I can't even wait to get into the show. I A lot of people... Might know this or might not know this, but I'm from a small town in Oklahoma, and I grew up on a farm. And one of the first things I learned growing up is you got to take care of your tools, man. You put them, you keep them clean, you put them back. And eventually, I got into bartending, and one of the things that I like most about bartending is the collection of tools and ingredients that you find along the way. And it wouldn't be possible to make the cocktails the way that we do nowadays without the help of a great company based out of New York City called Cocktail Kingdom. So I'm really psyched to have my buddy Ethan here from Cocktail Kingdom to uh, talk about this today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm super, super stoked to be here. Right on, man. It's It's been a while. We've been trying to do this for a while, yeah, so I'm really, really psyched. Yeah, really. We've been talking about this for a bunch. So yeah, man. Nice. So, uh, yeah, let's jump into it, man. Um, so Cocktail Kingdom's been around for, what, four or five years? I guess at this point it's been around for six, but I okay. mean, really, wow. our, like our origin story is kind of, we don't really have a set date where we began. We started off, the owner had a uh, an antique cocktail book collection and a huge interest in this, and it kept building and building and building, and eventually he segued into that to begin reproducing these books. Uh, actually, I guess I step back for a second. This was going on at the same time when everybody was, re- the, the cocktail scene was really, really popularizing, the, uh, the mid-aughts, basically. And as he began collecting these books, he realized that they weren't very available. He was buying them for hundreds of dollars on eBay. Bartenders and the people who would really be benefiting from this knowledge didn't have any sort of access to it. So uh, Greg Bohm, the current CEO and owner founder, uh, began using his pre-existing publishing company to publish supremely accurate reprints of these cocktail books. From there, he sort of segued into Japanese bar tools and um, really it started with this whole book reproduction company and then grew and and blossomed into more of a tool-based company, which is certainly what we focus on primarily right now. Yeah, I mean, like, I remember 
the first time that I heard about Cocktail Kingdom, and it was Mud Puddle Books, yep. is, is the publishing company. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember seeing some of these reproductions, and this was back when it was just like, I mean, now now the, the catalog is huge. But I remember seeing like the Harry Johnson's Bartender's Guide, which I actually like based a whole class on for Stumptown Coffee nice. for their baristas, and like because it's, it's a great service manual. Mm-hmm. But like when you see these original copies, like the, the first editions, um, next to the the re uh, the reintroduced the reprinted versions, they're I mean sometimes they're like better than the originals. I mean they're they're extremely accurate. Like my background is in print mm-hmm. and design and. So, you know, like, anytime I touch paper, like, I know exactly what the weight is, what it's made from, like, the, the mix and, like, all this stuff. And so, like, touching the pages of these books, it's, like, yep. it's really incredible. We like to say that you could bury it in the backyard for about two and a half weeks and dig it up and then put it on eBay, and we'd probably buy it uh, thinking that it was an antique. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we with this attention to detail that we had uh, with, with the reproduction of the books, um, we... Well, Greg began lecturing about the cocktail scene and well, about the history of cocktails. And at that same time, a bunch of bartenders began approaching him. Oh, you're going to Japan for this and that. Can you can you get us some bar tools? You know, can you bring back some uh, shakers, some strainers? And all of a sudden, he realized that there was this real need for it amongst the bartending community. Most of the tools that you would get in the states, you know, in New York, I mean, where would you go for tools before? Before us, it was probably the Bowery. The Bowery, yeah. Yeah, and there it's mismatched tins, it's the weak strainers, the sort of stuff that bends in half when you put a little bit too much effort on it, the bar spoons with the little red top. Yeah. Uh, and so all of a sudden there was this, this real demand. You know, I think I think part of it was bartenders began looking at uh, the kitchen and seeing how, you know, you can buy these Wusthof knives that are thousands of dollars and they are the prime, prime quality tools, but there wasn't anything like that for the bartending community. And... Um, once we were able to get in there and start to fill that that void and begin producing our own stuff, we just expanded and expanded our line, yeah. um, you know, until what we have today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely. I, w- I always say that you know we kind of like followed the culinary growth, you know, by a couple decades late, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but at, but at the same time, it's you know, <coughs> sorry, uh, the mm-hmm. knife knife quality was getting better, uh, different like kitchen tools like pots and pans and everything. You know, it's like better and better and better. Sure, all these like culinary shops to where you could buy better tools to make better food, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like we were talking about with the little red top, uh, mm-hmm. t- like large twist uh, uh, bar spoons and. Uh, the really crappy Hawthorne strainers and things. Like that. Well, I mean, even the julep strainer, you didn't really see even the the real like the three dollar julep strainer that you can get on the battery. You didn't really see those until maybe like seven eight years ago. No, probably not. I mean, there there wasn't. No one well, knew I mean, what they be, were. Yeah, nobody yeah. knew what they were. And before you know, before seven eight years ago, people you know, other than like Dale DeGroff and that sort of uh, that sort of caliber of bartender, people weren't really caring that much. I mean, it was still mm-hmm. the. You'd get a shake in Manhattan, and nobody would blink about that or anything like that. And the bartender wouldn't even care. And yeah. then all of a sudden, this, there be this, I guess, this whole education push, and bartenders started to take back their history. And you know, there was real nice heritage behind um, behind the bartending uh, scene. I mean, dating back into the early, uh, well, mid eighteen hundreds, really. Mm-hmm. And then once you start to get that history behind you, you, you sort of want to be able to present yourself, and you know, both aesthetically and quality with. Uh, yeah. With good stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, 
you know, I mean, you guys reproduced the uh, the original Jerry Thomas book yep. uh, from 1862, and you know, he was always. You know, that guy's steeped in legend anyway, but, you know, he was always very presentational, you know? Absolutely. Like, personally presentational, and then also that definitely bled out into, like, his bar tools that he traveled with. What was it? He he traveled with, what, like, back in the day, I guess it was, like, $1,600 worth of, like, gold bar tools and, like, <laughs> diamond rings on every finger. Yeah, which like, you could only imagine what that is today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, he was very, like, quaffed, like, like, legendary, like, big personality guy, and, like, you can't do that with crappy tools. You no, know? absolutely not. This is the guy who did the Blue Blazer, uh, by the way, the drink that you light on mm-hmm. fire and toss between two silver goblets. I mean, if it doesn't get any more presentational, than yeah, that, it's you ridiculous. Know. <laughs> and in all the while wearing a white waistcoat, you know, not oh, getting yeah. a drop on yourself. <laughs> no, perfectly, perfectly quaffed and everything. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> um, I mean, like going back to the book thing, though, mm-hmm. it's like there's a really like you know. We did a primates uh, a couple of years ago. We did this uh, Escoffier, uh, the the last dinner on the Titanic, which was kind of controversial. People were like, "Like, uh, what are you doing?" Oh, we were on, like, that's cool. It was I cool, and it was so yeah. cool. I got an old copy of Escoffier. I yeah, mean, that stuff's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, you know, and like, but like that that again goes back into the bartending side, you know, because we are constantly striving, you know, like look into the past to like create a better future, you know, for what we're doing, and. Uh, it's great to have all these. Like, man, uh, the one of the the crappiest books, and sorry, just like as far as like the original production, which you guys totally redid exactly the same, is the uh, the nineteen sixteen Hugo, uh, Hugo Insulin book. Yep. With that with the uh, uh, the original uh, aviation cocktail. This is mm-hmm. the first time it was in print, and I love that book. There's like there's such like virtue and merit like in putting this book together the exact same way because it was like a soft that's like, the gray the recipes for mixed drinks yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it's a great book it's recipes a great book. fantastic i think it's got the first el presidente mm-hmm. although it's a little bit different than you know than what we normally think of uh but yeah the idea is is accuracy in the reproductions and yeah. attention to detail like you said before exactly and you know i mean the history of, i guess circling back to the whole history thing the history of bartending is is it's kind of a sad one because it was totally interrupted uh, by prohibition, which threw everything out of whack. You know, you have this um, amazing wealth of knowledge that's building up and building up and building up, and all of a sudden in the 20s it just completely ceases. It has to go underground. You can't put on showmanship. You can't present yourself. All the you don't want to be seen. No, of course. At that point. Yeah. I mean, it's real speakeasy, not speakeasy style. Um, yeah. The bartenders all flee to Europe. And so when everybody comes back, then you have the war and... You go into the 50s, you get tiki culture, which is kind of cool, but then bartending kind of loses its way for the 60s and 70s, I'd say, uh, and, and 80s and 90s, maybe yeah, a bit too. Right. <laughs> and, then the, and then the early aughts, you start to really see this resurgence, and it's it's got to be tough. Like you said, I mean, it's got to be trailing the food movement in the same sort of way, but there's a lot more um, a but, lot more history. But food was never banned. Food was never banned, You know, I think one of the things that I like about I mean, like, dude, I, I'd, I'd love to see my, like, purchase history there. Oh, <laughs> I can pull it up. <laughs> I know you can. I know you can. Um, but, I, like, I, I I buy tools there not just for myself. I, like, typically, like, it's one of the places where I, like, it, not just tools, but books, too. And I, I always say that it's, it's good to read books, and you can learn a lot from it. But, like, the shared knowledge from person to person is a little bit more uh, 
effective, I would say. Definitely. But you can't do it without this, this, these uh, historical educational guides. Oh, of course. And and what's great about it is we will buy a lot of bartenders uh, and people, not even just bartenders, people that are enthusiasts. We'll buy these books and we'll like trade them around. We'll gift them to each other, mm-hmm. and it's great. It's such it's you're giving the gift of knowledge, you know. And it's it's such a it's basically it's like my one stop shop. For like gift giving, you know, like yep. I'll buy someone, you know, a, a Yarai mixing glass or you know a gold plated uh, two by one jigger, you know. Sure, I mean we, <laughs> we, you know, we definitely have bartenders coming in. And I got oh, I got my husband or oh, I got my wife. I gotta pick them up something, yeah. or and even random people off the street that aren't, you know, they're not bartenders. They're just your normal average person, but they're 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 super into it, or they have a friend who's super into it, and they just want to pick them up a gift, and you know, they really want them to use this stuff and and to get involved and that's that's pretty cool to see yeah. but going back to um, to the education thing that you're talking about that's one of the one of the biggest privileges about working at Cocktail Kingdom is we having the we have a little showroom in the office where anybody can come in and purchase uh, items and you know talk with us and talk shop and the luxury of that is we have all these bartenders coming in day in and day out and we get to geek out um, you know talking about meniscuses and talking about dilution and and really really trying to build up our knowledge and just riffing off each other and learning trends and oh you have these guys in from montreal oh you have these guys from san francisco and it's you get spoiled in a way it's 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 yeah. almost a think tank of sorts at, at times but it, definitely knowledge is, is, it, is so huge and it drives us so much absolutely know? i mean it, it reminds me of a few years ago when don lee had a speedometer on a mixing glass <laughs> with a bar spoon <laughs> Like who has the fastest stir? Yeah, like, I mean, uh, really, I wa- you guys get to do that. <laughs> I watched Don Lee sit there and uh, dash out Angostura bottle after Angostura bottle after another, and then you switch to Reagan's bottles and switch to uh, every single possible dasher top to determine what a dash was. And after he spent all the time dashing them, he then drew up these graphs and charts and averaged it out. <laughs> I mean, it was it was incredibly impressive to see. It was it was something that you would see. Uh, it reminded me of like a Harold McGee or a uh, like a Dave Arnold sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, I mean, Don Lee is—he's just your mad scientist. Yeah, he's our—he he does product development for us. He's been working—he's been working with us basically since the beginning. And having that guy on, on the team is really again like another spoiled luxury sort of thing that yeah. we have going on. You know, you can turn to him and ask him a question about anything and be prepared to just sit back and get an answer that just <laughs> riffs for 25 minutes about uh, how many ice cubes you want to put in the mixing glass when you're making Manhattan or jeez I don't even know yeah I mean he did the whole uh, he was part of the uh, the like science of the ice uh, kind of uh, presentation at Tails yep. a few years back right and that yep. was that, I guess it started out with the, the shaker thing and then then he eventually went to the, the stirring uh, speedometer <laughs> thing I think it's, it's wildly fascinating and like you know, you're talking about like Dave Arnold and like Booker and Dax. Like those guys are. I actually just got my copy of uh, Proof by Adam Rogers nice. uh, in the mail like two days ago. I, I just I cracked it open and I've gotten like a few pages in, and he just starts out with Booker and Dax yeah. and and uh, and Dave Arnold. And what's great about it is like you guys, you don't really like have a bar in the office, but you probably have more like <laughs> like vast like vast knowledge. Of like the actual science of making cocktails than most bars. It's it's crazy like that. I mean, it, we don't we're not beholden to anybody. We're not we're not putting out drinks for anybody. So we can really just sit there and experiment or stir water for an hour and a half and figure out <laughs> <laughs> how long it takes to come down to proper temperature and proper dilution. And I don't know, sit there and determine like, do you like a shaken margarita or why not? Let's stir one and see what what happens, and and let's taste it up and see what's going on. So there's this yeah this this real freedom to sort of uh, 
be able to innovate and not have to not have to put drinks out for anybody that that we can have and riff off of and then use to you know make our make our products and I guess the other nice thing is since we have so many bartenders coming in and out and since we have such nice connections uh, throughout the bartending community we're able whenever we're, we're developing a new product we're able to really get it out there and get it into the hands of you know somebody from death and company or somebody from uh, man, I don't know Booker and Dax and, they, and they'll try it out from us and they'll really give us feedback and it's something that we're able to take very very seriously and then sort of alter our products and produce them based on all the recommendations that we get yeah. you for instance we're talking about uh a one ounce, one and a half ounce jigger the other day, which mm-hmm. we now, you know, we, it wasn't just you. There were a bunch of other people who had been pushing us, but you know, you're probably the last one to talk about it. And we finally just like, all right, come on, let's, let's get this going and, uh, put it into production. And you're just gonna, yesterday ordered some. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sweet. That's great. Cause like I, I had two of them and one of them, I think I gave away to someone <laughs> and, uh, again, gifting, you know, yeah, things. of course. But, uh, yeah, sweet. That's great. Uh, I love the one and a half. Yeah. That'll be a fun one. People are weirded out by it, but I, I'm glad to hear that there are other people out there that have requested that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's not, it, I mean, it's nice. It's a, it's a simple product. A one and a half ounce pour is, is certainly traditional and sure. something that you're going to use often. So also, it's it's a little bit shorter, so it doesn't topple over. Yeah, of course. You know, that's one of my one of my favorite things about it. See, but it's those little little things. Oh, it doesn't. I hate when my jiggers topple over, or I hate when I'm stirring the mixing glass and it starts to spin around in a circle. It's those little yeah. details, and it's that sort of feedback that we get from bartenders. That's the really helpful stuff because okay. You're you're making a mixing glass. It's a vessel for ice. You start drinking, well, it's like, but it's the little touches that really, really allow it to allow you to produce a product that's above and beyond. Exactly. Yeah. It's like when you guys went from the rounded bottom Gerard mixing glasses to the flat cut. Yep. That keeps from starting. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I just I'm just a whirlwind when I'm stirring. It's just crazy. It's like a tornado. <laughs> well, I've um, seen you. I mean, it's just ice flying everywhere. Ice like everywhere, man. A spoon went across the room. <laughs> that. That definitely happens. <laughs> well, uh, we're halfway through the show. Let's take a quick break. Cool. We'll be back with Ian Khan from Cocktail Kingdom. Back in a few. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil them rhythm and blues that's him. It's gonna get you I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. 
And we are back. You're listening to The Speakeasy. And in the studio today, I have my buddy Ethan Kahn from Cocktail Kingdom. And we were just uh, talking about the, uh, basically, the kind of the, the short but important history of the, the company Cocktail Kingdom in Mud Puddle Books. Yep. And, uh, yeah, we were talking a little bit about uh, the Japanese bar. So, the, the Japanese bar tool uh, kind of, like, rise to fame is really interesting. It's not just, it's not really just the tools. I mean, like, Kazuya Yeda... Um, you know, the inventor of the hard shake, yep. uh, you know, which is a highly debated subject anyway. Um, you know, people are, like some people are on, on the, uh, the fence of like, you know, if, well, m- mostly the guy worked on the shake for like t- over 20 years. Yeah, of course. So <laughs> you're not going to be able to do it like immediately, but mm-hmm. the, you know, there's definitely theory behind it. Everyone has their theory, you know, in the way that they shake, the way they stir, the way they jigger, the way they crack ice, you mm-hmm. know, everything. Um, but that's the fun of it, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and what's really cool about uh, that and that the Japanese bar culture is that man, they have some amazing tools. Oh, absolutely. Really cool stuff. The mixing glasses alone are insane. Well, they're beautiful. I mean, the whole well, the whole Japanese bartending history is it, it's hugely interesting. You think about bartending and cocktails. I mean, it's a straight-up American thing. It comes out, you know, 1860 with Jerry Thomas. It's huge in San Francisco. It's huge in New York City. Um, it, you know, New York City is the huge capital of it. Uh, and it still is, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we, still, we still have that. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but when all of a sudden you have this Japanese culture that we're sort of in on. And, and so where this comes about is in the late 1800s when Japan opened its borders, it sent emissaries. If you're up on your history, you'll remember that uh, the Japanese had a sort of closed culture. They didn't let in any of the Western colonial powers up until uh, the late 1800s. And at that point, they sent emissaries all over the world trying to gather what the culture was at that time. And when they came to New York, what did they see? But they saw Jerry Thomas, they saw a cocktail culture, and they brought that back, and they allowed that to develop and to simmer over, man, over about 100 years. Without prohibition. Without prohibition. <laughs> that was the most important thing. I mean, they had World War II and all that stuff, but that didn't put a cork in cocktails like it did over here. Put a cork. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like that. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Been working on that one for uh, a few years. Um, and so it really allowed their... Japanese culture is supremely interesting, generally. You think of something like the tea ceremony, and then you apply that to the cocktail scene, which is, a lot of the times we think about a bar, it's a crowded, loud, fast-paced sort of atmosphere where you're just trying to put out drinks as quickly as possible. Uh, you're certainly trying to maintain quality in a number of places, but the Japanese style is completely different. It's it's hugely focused, huge attention to detail. It's this quiet, muted room. You go to a bar, there's seven seats at the bar there's not much else maybe a two top here or there the bartender is um, it's his bar if he's not there the bar is not open yeah and so obviously a society like that that brings something like that about is going to bring about some pretty badass tools and so uh, you know as I was saying like we really got our start with those sorts of tools bring the trident bar spoons the RI mixing glasses I mean mixing glasses up until up until we started bringing them in they were probably pretty much unheard of in yeah, the States. I mean, pint glass. It was pint glasses exclusively. And I, one of the other things that Japan did really well is uh, ice culture. You, you see a lot of ice picks. You see a lot of carving spheres out of ice, which, again, is, is an American thing. I mean, we had a huge uh, ice trade in the late 1800s. And yeah, we lost it. We did. We totally lost it, that damn refrigeration thing. Um, <laughs> 
I mean, it was it was definitely like the icing was one of the the biggest casualties of prohibition. I think. I mean, because you yeah. still have your recipes, but then people forgot about ice and how important it is, and the cocktail and. Not in the shaker, in the mixing glass, but even in the drink. You know, it was, it like, was huge. And it was, it was so different than what we know because they were – what most of the bartenders were doing at that time, they didn't have a freezer. They would actually have a giant block of ice. It would probably have a little bit of sawdust on it and would just sit on their bar. <laughs> and, you know, they'd be sawing off a chunk or they'd be carving off a chunk yeah. or they'd take um, something almost like a cheese grater and they'd grate these sorts of slizzer, slivers of ice off. So I've, I've talked with uh, Dave Wondrich, the cocktail historian, about that a, a number of times and he – what he really stresses is that the drinks would have been different in ways that we wouldn't have understood because instead of shaking with your 1.25 inch cold draft or hoshizaki cubes, you're shaking with something oblong or maybe in this instance they want you shaking with sort of a crushed pebbly type thing or maybe they just want a shaved sort of drink and it, it, a whole different experience. Yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those casualties to prohibition and to, uh, I guess, modernity, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting a lot of times when you when you read these old cocktail books too, it's mm-hmm. like a lot of times it won't specify, you know, the ICUs, it, like sometimes it'll say stir or shake, you know, like yeah. sometimes, or maybe it won't even say that yep. mix. It'll say mix. Build over ice. Build over ice. Yeah. Well, come on. <laughs> like, what does that mean? What and kind then, of ice? And then you see some of the woodcuts in there and it's like, Oh, it looks like a julep cup with ice piled up high or, yeah. or it looks like just a Pooh's cafe or it looks like a Manhattan without any ice in there. And you're like, well, what, what were they doing to come up with that? Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. It, it I mean, is. And like, then go back, well, I'm getting a little sidetracked there. Going back but to that's, Japan? That's what, we, that's what we do here. We get <laughs> sidetracked. Um, uh, the, the, the Japanese bar tools, like, first of all, like one of the most notable differences in the bar tools is the jigger. Yep. In my opinion, it's like one of the most visibly, not- noticeably, like, different, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, so the Japanese uh the jiggers are tall and slender rather than the V-shaped ones that you get on the Bowery. Exactly. The ones we know, you know we've known forever. They come in like a, uh, a rainbow of different sizes, which sizes is Sizes and weird. finishes and everything, <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen ones up to three ounces even yeah. with like an ounce and a half marking in there. It's odd, but Crazy. hey, it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, th- and those are nicer. As a bartender, you know, you, you, one of the things about those, the ones you can get on the Bowery where they're, this really shallow, flat-sided thing is when you're pouring into it, it a lot of the times will slide down the one side and then spill out the other side and kind of splash around and, and get messed up. Uh, whereas with the Japanese ones, and what well, we now have our, our Japanese-style ones, you just point, go straight into the glass, or straight into the jigger. and Yeah, and also, and like having a taller, slender jigger, you actually have a better mark of uh, measurement. Oh, absolutely. You know, like yep. with the wider ones, you, like if you if you pour just slightly under the actual surface area, it's a uh, huge amount. It's a right? huge amount. It, yeah, it's like it, sometimes it can be like a half ounce yeah, difference. Hum- That's insane. That will totally screw up a cocktail. Yep, yep. I mean, when you, when you're working with an ounce and then a half ounce and an ounce and a half ounce, you know, it's it's uh, you're removing one third of the drink. Sometimes that can be. It's insane. It's not the same drink at it's all. It's not the same drink. Yeah. yeah. In fact, they're like, you know, and one of my other favorite things to do, like when I'm looking through these old cocktail books, is seeing, I always threaten to like, like basically like duck out of existence and go into a cabin in the woods and create a giant flow chart on the wall <laughs> of all the cocktails that are exactly the same, except 
This one's a quarter ounce difference. This one is uh, the the garnish is oh yeah. a lemon instead of a lime. You know, why does this one have an olive in it? That's weird for a whiskey drink. You know, like that that kind of thing. But it's like it's true. Like yep. some some of these cocktails will have an entirely different name because of a quarter ounce difference of one ingredient. Oh yeah, exactly. You see you see a number of different martini variations. Like okay, this one has Boker's bitters. This one has orange bitters. This one has a pickled onion. This one has yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, your Gibson. Um, it's just these tiny, tiny little tweaks can really, really throw off yeah. and, and make a whole huge uh, world of difference. Yeah, you, got, you have to have the right tools for the job, you yeah, know. Definitely. And definitely, like the jiggers, like for it, where it starts. I mean, the mixing glasses, for one. I, I, like, mm-hmm. we're going to go back to that. Yeah. Um, man, I. It's one of the greatest pieces for presentation. I've done a lot of, like, uh, photo shoots for magazines and uh, like film shoots for different blah, 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 whatever. But man, I, I I love using the Yara mixing the glasses. Yara. Yeah, the Yara mixing glass for those of you at home uh, is our. It's basically a mixing beaker. It's about yeah seven or eight inches tall. Holds five hundred fifty milliliters, but it's got this beautiful crosshatch uh, pattern that almost makes it look uh, almost uh, crystal uh, yeah. ish. And so this has become not to jinx anything, but this has become sort of like a, a shibboleth, like a mark of when you walk into a bar and you see that on the bar, you're like, oh, okay. okay These guys at least take take their program yeah. seriously. You know, they're willing to put an investment into their tools. They're willing to try and experiment new things. You're not going to get a shaken martini here. You're going to get something that's stirred. You're going to get a bartender that hopefully is paying some sort of attention to detail. And it, it's, um, I think that's really become one of the marks of, uh, of a It absolutely of a has. nowadays. It yeah. absolutely has, man. Yeah. I mean, like, even like with the... Uh, uh, the Carico makes or the Carico shaker tins. It's yep. like, dude, they're shaker tins, but they're really good shaker tins. You know, yep. they they are not even that much more than the ones you get on the Bowery. No, well, the so the Coricos are definitely the Corico shaker tin is like price wise uh, is what I mean. Yeah, oh, of course, it's um, it's one of our most popular products. Definitely, it's a, a Boston tin set, so it's a large tin that's twenty eight ounces and a shorter tin that's eighteen, 18. ounces, and we've, you know, they're pretty much the same as you know they're metal cups but what we did to make them different and it took a lot of time to figure out that all we need to do was these few little changes but we um it's the angle where the two tins meet that makes all the world of difference so all of a sudden with this little tiny tweak and adjustment we come out with these shaker tins that i mean you've seen them they only break apart when you want them to break apart they break apart instantly when you do want them to pop apart yeah. uh i was at mother's ruin one time the guy's shaking with uh Probably Scotty. The guy's shaking with uh, with the tin. It flies out of his hands, goes across the room, lands on the floor. I watch a patron pick up the tin from just one end. It's still full. The two tins are still knocked together, uh, not leaking at all. Hands it across the bar to Scotty, who reaches out, takes it by the other tin, and then just pops it open and pours out the drink. I, That's I, awesome. I was floored. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Yeah. You you were floored, so was that shaker. Oh, with the <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's that it's that sort of stuff. Those little those little. Uh, bits and tweaks that really, yeah. really I mean make you guys are you're like every time I go in there you guys are working on something yep um it's it's amazing like I you know even before you guys started producing your own julep strainers uh I it was great walking into the office the old office uh, before you moved up to 25th mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you were on 21st before was, yeah right and uh I remember going in like you know I, I I had a conversation with Greg one time where I was like dude um because I collect you know yeah, I collect bitters bottles and, and, and old bar tools too. And it was like, 
I was like, hey, man, so uh, what do you think about this uh, this bitters bottle? And I showed him on my phone. It was on eBay. And he was like, eh, maybe, maybe you don't bid on that one. I was like, why not? And he's like, eh. Me and Wondrich are going back and forth on that one. <laughs> so then it became this thing where it's like we started like taking turns. I would like email Greg or Dave Wondrich and be like, all right, who's bidding on this? Whose turn is it? Yep. It's like, <laughs> we're just going to like price each other out, which is kind of the Brooklyn way, I guess. But, <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, there's like so much attention to detail in history mm-hmm. involved and, and really like, research and development i mean like i i definitely went in like when you guys were doing that experiments with different size and different angled uh carico shakers same with like i mean i've seen you guys like return so many products oh yeah of course i mean because <laughs> well, you guys are like so per, like perfectionist you know thing is if we're gonna if we're gonna produce a few thousand pieces of something it's gotta be it's gotta meet our standards i mean we've, be perfect we've wanted to carry this is such a trivial product, but we want to carry a peeler for years, mm. and we we have tested hundreds of them out there. We're not really going to go full out and totally redesign a peeler. I mean, it, it shouldn't be that difficult of a product to to find, but there just has not been one that we can carry that we can put our weight behind and say is is our thing. Or another product that Donley's been working on. It's this Hawthorne strainer. We're calling it the Corico Hawthorne strainer. So that's you know the same sort of line as the tins, that sort of thing. But I mean, my God, the the little bit of tweaks that he's been making. I saw him make a plastic model of it, and then he made a wood model of it, and then he made this, and then we made uh, 3D computer renderings that we sent over to the factory, and then and then we got the physical sample back, and then that still wasn't good enough, and we sent that back, and it's just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna put your name on it, it's got to be yeah, it's got to meet that sort of stuff. And plus, it's got to be worth your effort. Yeah, you know? I mean, just seeing you know when you when you put out a product that's really that good. And you see bartenders using it and, and loving it and saying like, oh man, that's that's my favorite. That's really making all the difference. I mean, it just we're big softies and that just warms our hearts. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's awesome, man. And you guys have been killing it for years. And you know, the whole the whole cocktail and bar world and and even beyond. You know, with yeah, the thesis, we all we all owe much thanks to you guys. Uh, and uh, and and I can't wait to see uh, this new Hunter stream. I can't wait to see the. Everything that comes out. I mean, like, I'm a huge fan of Cocktail Kingdom. Always have been. Always will be. Uh, use your tools exclusively. And, uh, man, I, and, and I'm hugely thankful for you being on the show today, Ethan. Dude, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. I'm, uh, you guys can't see, but I'm blushing over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, come back anytime. I'd love to. I'd love All right. To. And yeah. you can visit CocktailKingdom.com, and they do a mail order. Uh, you can get a bottle of bitters you can get a book you can get some shakers you can get whatever you want they will send it right to you yep. uh but if you are in new york city definitely go by the showroom at 25th and 6th avenue between 5th and 6th yeah yep. and uh yeah it's it's really it's a joy going in there checking out all the tools all the books you might even get to sample some weird booze oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but definitely go by next time you're in new york city Thank you so much again, Ethan. Seriously, it's been it's been awesome. Awesome, man. Yeah. All right, we'll see you next week. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.